like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 37 this morning. So uh, as you turn there, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, uh, it should be around page uh, 3031. Uh, You'll find it's the first book of the Bible. I shouldn't be too difficult to locate. Well, um, as John uh, pointed out, man, I'm really, I'm really excited about uh, this nice vision banner uh, that we've had made. I want to give uh, props and gratitude uh, to my friend Caleb Finsky, who has uh, some dis- design skills that uh, certainly exceed my own and probably yours as well. So he, he put these together for us, the, the banner when you walk in, the resource table, as well as just the handouts. Uh, he put all that together for us. Uh, so it's great to have a serving church when needs arise to say, hey, I'll volunteer time uh, to try to make this happen uh, for the church. So, so I'm excited not only about the way they look, but I'm more excited about the content, the vision behind what the words mean, because we uh, know and serve a great God, and it is in the knowledge of the greatness of God that they were moved to live our lives for him. So I believe God, by his grace, is building a great church uh, right here in Medford, this local expression known as Redemption Hill. And, uh, and it is going to be by his grace that we see him continue to move among us. So uh, I hope that this will serve as a visual reminder of the things that we want to do. And I just got to tell you, when we're singing about how God is able, I'm thinking, you know what, God, you are able. I'm looking at this band, I'm thinking, God, you are able to help us cultivate the rhythms of word and prayer. God, you are able to make us more missional, inviting others and sharing Christ and making disciples. God, you are able to build up our community where we're truly loving one another, plugged into community groups, really valuing membership. All of these things that we want to see God do in our church. I'm just saying, you know, God, thank you because you are great, greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. You are able to get this done as we submit ourselves to you. So I'm not going to re-preach the sermon I preached the first Sunday of the year, although I'm a bit tempted to do so, all right? But uh, as, uh, as we open the Word this morning, uh, and we think about one of these rhythms, Word and prayer, how is your rhythm of Word and prayer going uh, now on February, what is today, the 16th, right, thank you, uh, the 16th, Valentine's Day was two days ago, of course, I didn't forget that, um, so, so how, how is your rhythm of word and prayer now on February 16th, maybe you started the year strong, you started with some kind of resolve, some resolution, hey God, I'm going to really commit to being in your word consistently, hearing from you, seeking to apply it to uh, my life, well, um, I know and I know this is true probably in your life because it's certainly been true and is true in my own life, that a lot of times we come to the Bible day by day, and what we really need is the Spirit of God to continue to give us those desires to be in the Word and to open our eyes to see just what a treasure this is because this is the very revelation of God. Now, if we're all being honest, though, there are mornings, all right? There are evenings, there are times, there are Sundays where we come to this book. And, and, and what happens is it, it becomes kind of routine, right? We, we, we read a couple paragraphs. We do our duty. We've been a good Christian for the day. And then, and then all of the sudden, it's like, Man, what did I just read? 
Sometimes the Bible can become, not that the Bible is boring or monotonous, but our reading of it sometimes can become boring and monotonous. And so what we need then in those moments is to come back to God and say, God, by your spirit, would you open my eyes to see what a treasure your word is because it truly has the capacity because it is from God to give us life. Now, when we come to a story like Joseph in Genesis 37, which, oh, by the way, will take us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, I think we're reminded that the Bible is not a boring book at all, but it is a drama of redemption where on every page, every paragraph, every line, every word, it is unfolding this beautiful plan of God to bring his love, grace, and redemption to the world. But what I hope will happen this morning is that as we open the story, as we read the story, as we absorb the story, we will be captivated by the drama that is not only the Joseph narrative, but primarily the drama that is unfolding behind the Joseph narrative, which is the drama of God from beginning to end. So as we look at Genesis 37 this morning, we are going to consider the true and greater Joseph together. Uh, so, so just to get you up to speed, okay, we remember we looked at the true and greater Adam uh, the, a couple of weeks ago, looked at the, the creation story, how we are made in the image of God as his image bears to reflect his glory, to, to reflect who he is. Last week, we looked at how God makes covenants with his people and how God is a covenant-keeping God, and he chose this man, Abraham, uh, to, to, to uh, work through him to be this, this uh, one day that the, the blessing of God would come through him uh, as he would have descendants more than the stars in the sky. Do you remember this? And we talked about how the covenant is primarily what God is doing to keep his covenant with us. His faithfulness is what keeps the story moving. And so we're going to see that once again today. Abraham had a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 sons and the story that we pick up in Genesis 37 is the story of the sons of Jacob. So I want to read the first 11 verses of Genesis 37. And by the way, okay, just so you're not too nervous or apprehensive, I don't have time, all right, to unpack all 14 chapters for you in the ways that I would like today, all right? So you're going to get a lot of sketch, quite a bit of summary, but we'll also read some really key uh, portions to get a sense of the, the overall story. Okay, so first 11 verses of Genesis 37. Here we go. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Belna and Zippah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peace of, peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here in the very opening 11 verses, we can see the the potential of the drama unfolding, right? You have a family. And if your family is anything like my family, it's probably not a perfect family, okay? Can I just, anybody want to give me a witness on that? You know, like, I mean, if you're sitting next to your mom, okay, you can keep your hand down, I get it, all right? But I mean, there is a, there is a measure, we will say safely, I think a measure of dysfunction in every family. And this is certainly the case of the patriarch Jacob and his 12 sons. Now, what we see is because uh, Jacob loved Rachel in this, in this very uh, special way, he loved Rachel's son, Joseph, more than his other 11 sons. And so Jacob, perhaps unwisely we could assess, shows preferential treatment to Joseph, all right? He's the, he's the baby of the group. He gets the nice stuff. In fact, his father has him made this robe. We've known it to be called a coat of many colors. Children, uh, Bibles pick up on this story, and it's a great way to teach kids and capture their imagination. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was, it was a, a, a very uh, a noticeable robe. It was very beautiful, and also it was probably very costly, okay? So you can just imagine, you know, Joseph, his other brothers in their, you know, sheepskin garb or whatever they got on, and Jacob, I mean, Joseph's kind of walking around, you know, straight Gucci, you know what I'm saying, looking all, looking all good. And, and so the, 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 the sentiment of his brothers, every time they see this, this robe, this coat that represents the preferential treatment of their father, their, their anger, their bitterness, their jealousy, and the story says multiple times, their hatred for their brother, continues to mount higher and higher and higher. And then to top it all off, if the coat wasn't enough, he has these dreams, and just to summarize, they're they're dreams that are touting the supremacy and superiority of Joseph. Hey, look, brothers, you know, you're older than me, but you're not as loved as me, and oh, by the way, I'm dreaming that you're bowing down to me one day. How do you think that made his brothers feel? Uh, Not super uh, pumped up about Joseph and his 
coat of many colors as well as his dreams. So the story continues in verses 12 through 18. And what we have here, we find out that, that Jacob was a shepherd as were his sons. So, so the 11, uh, 10 or 11 brothers are out in the area of Shechem, shepherding, pasturing the flocks. And so Jacob sends Joseph to go check on them and make sure everything is okay with the brothers and with the sheep. And so we pick up the narrative then in verse 18, and here's what happens. It says that they, speaking of the brothers, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. <coughs> and his plan that was that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So what we have here is this scheme of the brothers to do away with Joseph, to do away with his beautiful coat and his many dreams. Their hatred for him had reached the tipping point to where now they see an opportunity. He's away from Jacob. He's away from the protection and security of the father. Let's do away with our brother. But the, ta the tables turn. The narrative takes a twist. In verse 25, it says that, that um, they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And so Judah devises a plan. What profits it is if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver." They took Joseph to Egypt. So we see that, that there is this, this devious plan to do away with their brother, but, but Reuben has the, the plan to save him ultimately out of the pit, rescue his life, and then, and then, and then there's this caravan of, of traders who come along, the Ishmaelites, they're on their way to Egypt. So, um, so, so then Judah steps up and says, hey, let's not, let's not um, you know, have, have the blood of our brother on our hands. After all, he is our own flesh and blood. Let's sell him into slavery. And unconscionably, this is what happens. The brothers sell Joseph into the hands of foreigners, and he becomes a slave in their hands. So what is then Jacob, the father's response? We pick up 
in verse 31. It says, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify it, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. <coughs> so what we have here, John, will you give me some water? Thanks. Um, what we have here is the father receiving news of his son who appears to have been killed on the journey, right? And it, it says that he was inconsolable over the news of his son. Thank you. So he was, he was inconsolable over the news of his son being killed on the journey. But then there is this, this twit, this, this glimmer of hope, this glimmer of providential blessing in verse 36, where it says that the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, and Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So then what happens in chapter 39, you ask? Well, we don't have time to read it, but we see that Joseph is a servant in the house of Potiphar. Again, this is one of uh, Pharaoh's main men, a captain in his army. And verse 2 in chapter 39 sums up this portion of the narrative where it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So because God was with Joseph, because God was looking after Joseph, causing him to become successful and prosperous, this this blessing that was with Joseph was naturally rubbing off on Potiphar. So Potiphar is loving it. He's becoming more and more prosperous. Everything is going great in Potiphar's house until Potiphar's wicked wife sees what what a handsome man Joseph is. And so she tries to seduce Joseph and lie with him. But Joseph, being the man of God that he is, having integrity in his heart, he resists the temptation. It says that when when she tried to seduce him, he runs out of the room, but Potiphar's wife grabs part of his garment, and then she uses it out of spitefulness and anger to turn the tables on him and claim that he was trying to violate her. And so when news comes back to Potiphar, Potiphar is irate and he throws Joseph into the king, Pharaoh's prison. But verse 21 says, but the Lord, here it is again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you see what's going on here? Wherever Joseph finds himself, whether he's in Potiphar's house or whether he's in the prison, God is blessing the work of his hands and causing blessing to flow from Joseph. And so providentially, it it happens in chapter 40 that Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker, who the Pharaoh had just happened to be angry with for a few days, were sent to prison. And when they arrive in the prison, they have these dreams. And so what we have in chapters 40 and 41 detail, Joseph's rise to power. And how did he rise to power? It was through his ability, his God-given ability to interpret the dreams of others. So the cupbearer and the baker come to Joseph with a dream, and and Joseph interprets this dream for for them, and and it was really favorable for the cupbearer. He says, Pharaoh is going to be kind to you. He's going to spare your life, but for the baker, you will actually be uh, hanged by Pharaoh. And so he asks the cupbearer, hey, would, would you remember my kindness toward you? And revealing to you the interpretation of this dream. And at the end of chapter 40, what does it say in verse 23? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph, once again, giving himself away in kindness to others, you would expect some kind of table to turn, and yet it says that he was forgotten by the cub bear whose life was spared. And so then we pick up in chapter 41, starting in verse one. We see that it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up seven attractive cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief got bare said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, He interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. 
And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the bank, the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. So then what happens is they, that Pharaoh tells the dreams to Joseph. He recounts the dreams. Hey, Joseph, I hope just like you interpreted the, the chief baker's dream and the cupbearer's dream that you can also interpret my dreams. And so then we pick up in verse 25 with the interpretation. This is what Joseph says. Then, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So what we have then here in chapters 39, 40, and 41 is this rise to power for Joseph. He moves from Potiphar's house to the prison and ultimately to the palace because God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And so God had deposited this gift in, in Joseph. By his spirit, he was able to discern these dreams and to interpret them so that 
he was able to use these gifts to rise all the way up. Can you imagine this? To second in command in all of the land of Egypt, right under the command of Pharaoh. So I want you to think about this just for a moment. Joseph here is an example of a true public servant. All right? I know it's hard for us to imagine a politician who actually works for the good of those under his charge, right? But, but, it, but it does happen, and it certainly happened here with Joseph. He was a man of integrity. So he devises this plan to take care of the people through the, the years of plenty so that in the years of famine, he, they all can be taken care of. So I think we see here a great example of a public servant who uses his position and power not to be served, but to serve and care for others. So if you are a public servant, no matter what your field, maybe you're in education, maybe you're going into law or politics or government or law enforcement, or you're in uh, some uh, military service, whatever, whatever, maybe you're a teacher, what, whatever the case may be, here is an example of how we made in the image of God are made to reflect his image in our work to glorify him, number one, but then number two, to serve the common good of man around us. God gives us vocation so that we can serve and love our neighbor as ourself. And as we looked at a year ago, these are, as Luther put it, the masks of God. Our vocational work, our vocational spheres of influence are the masks of God. In other words, God is accomplishing his purposes through people to take care of people. Whether they need to learn whether they need to be cared for in, in, in hospitals, maybe you're in medicine, that's public service. And so all of these are opportunities to display the glory of God and to serve your neighbor as yourself. And we need to point out too, in verses 38 to 43, that Joseph is the only person in the book of Genesis where it says that, that the Spirit of God filled him. He was discerning and wise. And so that's chapters 37 through 41. Then we find in chapter 42, the divine purpose behind the placement of Joseph in such a strategic position. Okay, what does this say in verse 1 of chapter 42? When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but jo Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So what we have going on then is we see that the famine stretched all the way to Canaan to the point where <coughs> Jacob <coughs> catches wind that there is, there is relief in the land of Egypt. So he sends 10 of the brothers to go and to make sure that the family is cared for. 
But then can you imagine what is going to happen when the brothers go to Egypt? Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. <clears throat> they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the, son, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So what, what happens then as the story transpires is that we have this encounter, right, of the brothers with Joseph, this, this amazing, uh, shocking encounter that we thought would never happen. He's been sold into slavery, right, probably never to be seen again. And yet the brothers come and, and they come to the man who is the governor over all the land to distribute food, but that, that governor turns out to be their brother, Joseph. And so you say, well, well, how did they not recognize him? Well, number one, he was 17 years old when they sold him into slavery. <clears throat> so 20 years is a pretty long time. His appearance had changed. Number two, he looked like an Egyptian. He had, he had shaved, clean shaven. He spoke like an Egyptian. He was clothed in Egyptian garb, okay? So they did not recognize their brother, Joseph. But then Joseph devises this plan. And at first, it seems like he may be trying to get vengeance on his brothers. But what's going on is he's working out a scheme to bring the whole family back to Egypt. And so he detains one of the brothers, sends the others back, and it says in chapter 43 that the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to, him, to them, go again, <clears throat> buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you the food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Okay, so actually the 10, all 10 brothers go back. I said that wrong. All 10 brothers go back to uh, the land of Canaan to be with their father. They run out of food. 
but they know that unless they come back with Benjamin, it's not going to turn out well. He's going to know that they're spies, and he's going to imprison them for good. And so finally, because the famine is so great, Jacob gives in. He sends Benjamin with them. And I didn't, we didn't read, but Jake, uh, Joseph had actually placed money in the sacks of the brothers. And so now it looks like they have taken possessions out of Pharaoh's house. <coughs> and so they're stressed out for sure. Okay, they, they have this money. They, they don't know how that's going to be perceived. Number, now Benjamin is going with them. That's an added stress. And if anything happens to, to him, then uh, their, their father, Jacob, will be uh, ready to die himself. So they, they muster up the courage to go back to Egypt. And then it says in verse 26 that Jacob, uh, Joseph had prepared a feast for them, a banquet. And it says, <clears throat> when Joseph came home, they brought him into the house to him, the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And so once again, what we find then in chapter 44 is that Joseph tests the brothers again. This time, he puts a silver cup into the sack of Benjamin, and he has his servants ride ahead, catch up with them, and, and say, accuse them of, of, of stealing, which they're all innocent, wondering what's going on here. And so they search their bags, and lo and behold, there is the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. So once again, Je uh, Joseph is working out the scheme to care for his family, to provide for his family, to bring them back into this plentiful land where they will be taken care of. Now, the brothers are distraught, right? Because Benjamin is the beloved son of Jacob now. And if anything were to happen to him, they would not know what to do. So we find out that Judah offers himself up. Hey, don't keep Benjamin in prison, but take me. I will be the substitute on his behalf. And so in this emotional scene, it says that then in chapter 45, Verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who saw him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. And this is exactly what happens. They bring Jacob to be reunited with his son Joseph. And the whole family is taken care of there in Egypt. So this is the the narrative, the story of Joseph. What do we learn then from this magnificent story? I want to give you two encouragements that I feel like are valuable lessons for us to take away from this story, okay? Number one, we should trust in God's providential plans over all the details of our lives, Did you see how at every turn God was using the evil schemes of people to accomplish his sovereign purposes? The dreams that Joseph dreamed and and they actually worked out ironically to become true. Potiphar's wife who was wicked and and falsely accused uh, Joseph, it actually put him into the prison where though he interpreted the dreams of of the cupbearer, the cupbearer forgot about him, but God was still at work to cause him to remember one day. And then we have uh, Joseph rising up into the second in command in the, the house of Pharaoh so that he could provide for his family. And so what we have here behind all of these actions in the narrative, chapters 37 through 45, is the main character of this story, right, which is not Joseph, but it is God himself, okay? So I know what we do when we read the Old Testament, we just kind of moralize the book, right? We moralize the Bible. What I mean by that is we we take the story of Joseph and we say, hey, don't be arrogant and proud to your you know, siblings, but be humble. You know? And that's like what the text means all of a sudden. And, and, and we, we see how the brothers hated you know, Joseph. And we say, well, you know, you should be a little more, you know, we should be a little nicer. You should be a little more understanding. He's the younger brother after all. So this is how. And so we, what we do is we just make it, we reduce the stories to example where it's do these things, don't do these things. And if that's how we treat the Bible, we are going to miss out on the story of God that he's weaving through to get to our hearts and to unpack his redemptive purposes. So what we have in the story, as we just read in chapter 45, God is working behind the scenes, all right? It's like he's, God is behind the curtain, but he is orchestrating. He is either permitting all things or decreeing all things that happen in this life to work out his sovereign purposes in our lives. 
And so this is, this is what we looked at with this article of, of, in our statement of faith of providence, is that God is, is ultimately working these things out for our good and for his glory. John Flavel, who was a Puritan pastor, said this about the providence of God. The providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards, okay? So we, we read from left to right in English, okay? If you had a Hebrew Bible this morning, you would be reading from right to left, all right? So in other words, we see the, the beginning from the end, right? That is our vantage point. This is, this is how we see the world in our lives. But God doesn't just see the beginning from the end. God sees the end from the beginning. And he works out his perfect purposes in our lives. And so providence is like that. We can only read it backwards. <coughs> so, I know that you face trials like Joseph, perhaps hopefully never to this degree, but you still face trials, you still face suffering. We know that Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. And so the question becomes then, how will we respond to these trials and suffering that we face? Sometimes God will reveal his purposes to us and we'll be able to see, like Joseph, how God was working out his purposes in our lives, but sometimes we'll only get the faintest glimpse of what God is doing. But the encouragement for the Christian, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when all is said and done, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. So if you are going through a time of trial, a time of suffering, I just want to encourage you to be patient because one day, whether in this life or the next, you will have the opportunity to read God's providence backwards and have his perspective on what he has been working in your life. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. Even when you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. Isn't that good? Even when you cannot trace his hand, you can't see exactly what he's doing, you can trust the heart of our Father, our Shepherd, our Lord who cares for us. God has a plan, and we see this most clearly in the cross of Christ the most evil, the most unjust, the truly innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ, was crucified on a Roman cross that God might work out his ultimate purpose and plan of redemption to save all who would come to him. Which then relates to this second encouragement from this text. To not only trust in God's providence over all the details of our life, but also to receive and extend forgiveness in light of the forgiveness of God in Christ. So what I want to do is just give you four truths about forgiveness. Okay, number one, forgiveness is enabled by God. What I didn't tell you earlier is at the end of chapter 41, we find out that Joseph has a son, and he names his firstborn son Manasseh. And what does that name mean? It means that God has made me forget 
God has released me from all of the thoughts, all of perhaps, but I'm sure that Joseph struggled with anger, wouldn't you? I'm sure that Joseph struggled with bitterness and unforgiveness, and so he needed God to work in his heart to heal him so that he could extend forgiveness. So when you are offended, and you are sure to be offended in this world, as well as you are sure to offend others, just know that forgiveness is enabled by God. God is the one who has to work in our hearts to put us in that place where we can forgive others. But then what does forgiveness look like? Well, forgiveness extends compassion and proper emotion over and over and over again. In fact, six times through these chapters, we find that Joseph is just overwhelmed with compassion, with emotion. He weeps bitterly in the presence of his brothers, in the presence of of his uh, brother Benjamin when he comes, in the presence of his father. And so there is a proper emotion that goes along when we, when we uh, extend forgiveness to others. But then, number three, forgiveness fuels love and care for the offender, all right? So it's not just enough to say, you know what, you offended me, that's okay, and go on about our business and kind of think, oh, you know, I don't really care what happens to them, which is what we do sometimes, right? But forgiveness, true forgiveness, is after the full restoration of the relationship where you don't not only want bad not to happen to those people, but you actually want to see them thrive and and good things to happen to them. And you're even willing to do something about it yourself. And so we saw all throughout the narrative how Joseph was providing for them. He was caring for them. He was bringing them back to the land of plenty. When they were distressed, when he revealed himself, I am Joseph, he says, don't worry, don't be distressed. I'm not angry at you. This is what true forgiveness looks like, and it is radical. And then finally, uh, as I mentioned, forgiveness seeks complete restoration of the relationship. So so rather than seeking revenge, Joseph forgives. Rather than holding on to bitterness in his heart, which, oh, by the way, when you hold on to grudges and bitterness, really the, the person that's going to suffer the most is you. That's just how it works. It will eat away at you. So Joseph, he doesn't have revenge in his heart. He doesn't have bitterness in his heart. He removes the debt that his brothers had built up against him. I mean, think about the grace of God at work in the life of Joseph. This is a shocking story of mercy, forgiveness, and love. Would you agree with that? It's a pretty shocking story. But for the Christian, this, sh- this story should sound shockingly familiar, right? Because God in Jesus Christ has, though we have offended him and mounted up a great debt in the sight of God, God has removed it completely when we come to him for his provision in Christ and his shed blood on the cross. So do you see that? It's, 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 it's a coming 
to Joseph for the provision, for the restoration of the, of the relationship that Joseph's brothers were forgiven. And the same is true of us when we have offended God, and we have. We come to him, and we find his provision in Christ, in his work on the cross to forgive us of our sin, that we might now have this perfectly restored, amazing relationship with God. And so as we think about this, this story of Joseph, what we find is that, Je- that Jesus is the true and greater Joseph who forgives those who put him to death and saves all who come to him. Think about that. Jesus is the true and greater Joseph who forgives those who put him to death and saves all who come to him. What we have in this story is what I'm understanding is that Joseph is a type of Christ, okay? So so sometimes we have themes that connect and find their resolution in Christ. Okay, we saw that um, um, to a degree with Adam. Okay, Adam was both a type, but you also have this theme of image of God and and how we bear the image and likeness of Christ. Okay, so, so that was two ways that we saw how the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, and we saw that with, with covenant as well. Well, now, in, in the Joseph narrative, we have this understanding of typology, okay? And so typology sees historical patterns that are divinely intended to point to the person and work of Christ, all right? So, so there is, as James Hamilton says, there is both correspondence between the type and the fulfillment in Christ, but there is also a heightening, an escalation that is found in the person of Christ. Do you see that? Typological interpretation is canonical exegesis. It just means we're interpreting the whole Bible. That's the, this is the canon of Scripture, okay? And, and we're seeing these divinely intended, okay? So God is using these stories to point us to the person and redemptive work of Christ, and he does so through correspondence and escalation, okay? So that is why we're saying that Jesus is the true, okay, there's correspondence between the story of Joseph and Jesus, but there is also an escalation, a heightening that Jesus is the true and greater Joseph, who when he was betrayed by Jesus, Judas, who was like a brother to him, sold for 30 shekels of silver, he still went to the cross and forgives us of all of our sin. It's an amazing Savior that we know and love and serve. And so to conclude this morning, let me ask you just very simply, have you received the forgiveness of God? There's nothing more important than knowing that this God, this Jesus, this true and greater Joseph, you have surely offended with your life the way that you have not lived under his righteous rule and reign. And yet because God is so immense in love that he would send Jesus to die in our place to extend forgiveness to us. So if you have not received the forgiveness of God, it is yours today if you would just trust and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then what happens, the beautiful thing, this is why we say the gospel transforms us and it, and it, and it should influence everything that we do in life, including our relationships, Because then what happens is in light of the forgiveness that we have received from God, 
we are able to then forgive others as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So first, I hope that you have received the forgiveness of God, but then that forgiveness should compel us to not only seek forgiveness when we have wronged someone else, but whenever someone has wronged us, no matter how great the offense, we, by his grace, can extend forgiveness because we have been forgiven so much. So this happens. This happens through knowing the true and greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, experiencing his love, forgiveness, and grace so that then we can live that out and reflect that in everything with our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this truth. Lord, we pray that as we continue to go through our week and in our relationships, Lord, there is, there, there is so much encouragement for us in this story as we see how you have worked out your purposes uh, through your son to bring us redemption. God, we see how you have forgiven us. And Lord, I pray, I'm sure that even as, even as we've opened your word and even as I've been sharing these things, there are probably people popping into our minds, people that we need to seek their forgiveness and people whom we need to forgive. And so, Lord, would you allow us, by your grace, enable us to extend forgiveness just as you have forgiven us. Lord, we are grateful for your grace, and we celebrate it today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.